Hello and welcome to another episode of the Killing Times podcast and a regular, although quite regular at the moment uh, it seems, series of audio interviews with some of the biggest and best names in crime drama and crime fiction. In this episode, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by a bona fide Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. Born in Illinois in 1945, Robert Olin Butler is the author of 17 novels and numerous short story collections including A Good Scent from Strange Mountain, which won the aforementioned Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1993. Robert, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Hello. Delight to be here, Paul. Took me a quarter of a century to get to your show, you know, (laughs) after that poetry, but I'm glad I did. Well, I'm very glad you did. I'm very excited to meet you. Um, Now, before we get to your crime and mystery novels, um, I'd like to start by asking you about your experiences in Vietnam. Mm. Um, and how they've sort of influenced your work. Because, I mean, you served in that war. I did. Um, and you keep going back to it in your work. Uh, it sounds like a silly question. It's not meant to be. Is is that an experience that's impossible to shake off for you? Or do you just keep finding new things to, to say? It, it's, um, it's not a silly question at all. Um, uh, I do find new things to say, certainly. But um, the th- the things are really found in the saying, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's the the in a way, you know. I I work. I I don't hold to great distinctions between the the, the classic genre classifications of fiction and literary, except in the sense that most of the entertainment genres, most of the writing that's done. Um, there's 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 wonderful creativity involved, but the forms are often pre predetermined, right? And a lot of the the plotting, just the, the gross plotting of it, is done within s- certain kinds of expected parameters. And um, and for the the writer who uh, has a works the literary genre. And approaches the entertainment genres as a, a whole person, and so a lot of my what I am writing for in a literary way comes out in those entertainment forms from the same impulses that make me so-called literary. And I'm I'm getting around to answering your question <laughs> um, because. Um, I'm going to cite your your wonderful Graham Greene, who, yeah. by the way, also did works that got him on the short list of the Nobel Prize. Absolutely, and things he he called entertainments, but That's in right. fact, uh, Stambul Train and and the Human Factor and Quiet American and s- several others right, are thought. Yes, yeah, yeah, and those yeah. are thought to be. You know, his entertainments, but yeah. some of those are amongst his best and most resonant works. Yeah. And the fact is that he once said, although I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the quote, but <laughs> uh, for a reason it will be immediately apparent, he said that all good novelists have bad memories. He said, what you remember comes out as journalism. What you forget goes into the compost of the imagination. Right. I've got a really good bad memory. <laughs> I mean... I, I'm here in London, and um, I've I've got some. I'm going to see some theater, and I've got tickets to a play. I'm really looking forward to it. And, uh-huh. and you know, 
Ian Mills, my my wonderful editor at No Exit, uh, had dinner with me last night, and 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 it came out that I had recommended this play to him <laughs> because we were here, my wife and I, a little over two years ago. Right. And apparently, my wife and I saw this play two years ago, and I have bought a ticket to that play, not not remembering an iota of a thing that a, a, a play that I love so much that I told him to go see it, and he tells me I was right about it. Right, so right. that's how bad my memory is. Okay, but it's really useful. Yeah. In writing. So I'm getting around to answering your question, Paul. You didn't know what you got yourself into. <laughs> I know, did, right? did you? Oh, no. <laughs> so that's why I said, is there an end point in your, in your podcast here? But the fact is that um, the answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> no, because, but because of that, the, the, yeah, it has continued to influence me. Yeah. But, but not as, not as um, a kind of... I can't get rid of it. Memory. I was in a war, and I just I'm yeah. haunted by literal things that I remember. On the contrary, it was a it was a year of ravishing moment to moment sense based experience, which right. which is the stuff of most of literary fiction, especially. Yeah. And um, and by the way, when I arrived in Vietnam from the first day there, I was already fluent in Vietnamese. The army. Oh, wow. I was a counterintelligence special agent, by the way. I was okay. in. I was in war, and I was in. in, in I was an in intelligence. You know, in, in military intelligence. Yeah. Which are connected to, to Cobb in this sure. in this series. Yeah. But um, they also sent me to language school for a whole year. I studied right. full time for a year, and I right. picked it up. And uh, so I spoke fluent language. The, the language fluently, and I spent. Five months working in the in the in the countryside, um, in military. In, in it was a counterintelligence agent, but in fact, I was in military positive intelligence in those five months, sure. driving around the countryside alone in a in a jeep uh, through the rice paddies and making contacts with Vietnamese farmers and woodcutters and fishermen and provincial police chiefs and agent handlers, Vietnamese guys, and and then I spent seven months. Um, I was transferred into a attached to an American Foreign Service officer who was the advisor to ma- to the mayor of Saigon. Wow! Lived in an old, I worked a civilian clothes job. Lived in an old French hotel. My favorite thing in the, in the world. Every night for seven months, I'd wander after midnight. I put my thirty eight in the bottom drawer and armed only with the Vietnamese language, wander the steamy back alleys of Saigon where even nobody, in the middle of that war, oh, even yeah, in the middle of that no, and, Yeah, and where there were no where there were no front lines. Yeah. But I yeah, it's kind of it's crazy in retrospect. However, I knew I knew the I knew the people by then. Yeah. From those five months. I mean and they were in they are as a group most warm and generous spirited people in the world and, right. and amongst them. And I'm, I had, I had faith in, you know, and whatever it was, I wanted to go back there and crouch in the doorways with them as I did. And they, right. they invariably, invariably invited me into their homes and into their culture and into their lives. Wow. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and all of that stuff, my good band, Ben Rain kicked, has kicked in. Yeah. So every, much of what I know about the human condition that transcends race and gender and nationality and culture and all that stuff, the stuff that literary writers deal with, the, the essence of the human condition. Yeah. Much of what I know, not only about Vietnam, but about everybody, I learned f- 
in those back alleys of Saigon and in those in the countryside there, and um, and so that stuff has you know my good bad memory has been at yeah. work and it is it composted all of that. So you ask an essential question there, Paul, and you're and, the, and as I say, this was a long answer, yes, because it has influenced everything since. Mm. But in that way, yeah. not as literal memory, not as political attitudes. My last book with. With the end when in No Exit, or I guess it was under Old Castle's imprint, uh, Perfume River. Yeah. Um, you know, my book of won the Pulitzer 25 years ago were short stories in the voices of Vietnamese exiles living in southern Louisiana. Came there yeah. right after the war was over. And, um, but this book is about Americans who, who have gone to Vietnam, and especially central character. And and the and the past is always in dialogue with the present, and it's mm. it's, the, it's the 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 effects today of of people who went to that war. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've answered my first. I don't know, two or three ten or twelve questions. questions here. Yes, there we go. <laughs> I, well, it's that, been nice talking to you, Paul. Yeah, it's been well. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. But um, <laughs> but no, I mean it's interesting because I think war means different things to different people. We, I think maybe war gets fetishized a lot on screen and perhaps in in books as well mm-hmm. um certainly with some politicians um mm-hmm. um so i'm interested i mean you do i mean we're used to seeing kind of explosions courage mostly males kind of beating their chests and shooting mm-hmm. guns and all that very very uh, well defined or clearly defined good versus evil yeah um, but I think this is the brilliant thing about your books is that you take a completely different approach to that. You, you it, they're very human. Well, the fact is, even in Vietnam, I mean, and this is the fact. This is true of all wars, certainly all wars from the 20th century onward. That any given war, in any given war, um, something like 80 percent, and the probably a little more than 80%. I, I just gave a keynote address at the Air Force Academy last week, and for them it's more like 90% right. of the people who are, uh, go to war never see combat in the way that right. we're talking about. Right. That, um, that, they, um, that only 20% at most of the people who go to war ever, are, ever do the kind of armed warrior yeah. Activities. Yeah, yeah. And for the rest of us, we go, and especially in Vietnam, what our experience of the war is, as you could begin to hear, is a, is the collision of cultures. It's, yeah. And 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 engaged, especially now, in, in wars where there were no front lines. Well, yeah, which Vietnam, which was, was basically the the first big war where there yeah. were no Vietnam, and so it's even more exaggerated now. Mm. That eighty percent used to. You know, hole up in 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 in, uh, in in camps where they all they saw were other American soldiers for the whole time they were yeah. in a foreign country and they went home. Um, but but now it's a different thing, and so and yeah, that that's that's the kind of experience of war that that I'm describing, and that yeah. I, and that is in my compost heap. Yeah. In fact, a funny story if you want. Go um, ahead, please do. How that works out in human terms. Um, in those steamy back alleys of Saigon, when I was yeah. out wandering around, um, I am, um, you know, there was a, there was 
among the places I, I mean, I frequented a Buddhist temple. I had friends amongst Buddhist monks, and I had just families all over the back alleys. And there was a little bar at the end of one of those alleys that I often ended up in, and late at night, and there were guys in there, and we. We, we, we had a, a lovely rapport and they were enchanted that I spoke the language. And we, we never talked about the war at all. Um, you know, anything but. Right. And then after I won the Pulitzer Prize in 1993, I had a chance to win. In fact, I guess I won the Guggenheim even before I won the Pulitzer. Right. So it was... Uh, it was uh, legit. I won a Guggenheim <laughs> fellowship. That's what I was trying to figure out the chronology. Right, right. So, be that as it may, I I, I went to back to Vietnam in 1994 for the first time. For since. the first time since. Wow. And one of the first things I did in now Ho Chi Minh City instead of Saigon, I went back and wandered those back alleys, and I eventually found my way down to the end of that one. Alley, and lo and behold, there was a bar there still. The same bar, different name. Uh, no, it, I went in, and I think I mentioned Graham Greene to you. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I was a little sketchy on the memory, <laughs> but those places were, were repeated enough. They were burned right. into my mind. This looked very familiar to me, yeah. and I went in that bar, and there was a guy in there, um, and, and so this 71 to 94, so that's 23 years later, almost a quarter of a century later, this guy looked awful familiar to me. Wow, no. And I sat down and we started talking and this guy was the bar owner 23 years earlier when I was wandering the, those back alleys. And, you know, we were thrilled to see each other and yeah. we started talking and... He eventually confided something in me, which was that all those nights that I was in that bar that, during that seven months. Yeah. Uh, and and under, you understand, this is 1994 now. It's been under the communist regime since 1975, and this bar is still sitting here as it was. Yeah. In 1971, when I was hanging out in that bar, that bar was the central meeting place point for all the Viet Cong in Saigon. Okay. See what a great intelligence operative I was. <laughs> so, but we had a kind of separate piece. Right. They, 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 I don't think they quite knew that I was intelligent. You know, they didn't know who I was except I was American and I spoke fluent Vietnamese. Right. Which probably made them innately suspicious initially <laughs> but th thrilled that i you know i clearly yeah wanted to hang out uh, wanted to hang out enjoyed them appreciated their culture i mean you know i was pretty persuasive about that pretty quickly yeah and they took me as sincere and i and you know we never talked about the war but but this was the Viet Cong i was hanging around with wow unbeknownst to me unbeknown to you back then yeah so you found out in 1994 94. wow I bet you just looked at the bar and went, I don't know what you said to yourself. Really. I don't know. <laughs> well, but you know, it's it mixed feelings. But um, but but honestly, for me, that was that was in it, it's getting at kind of what you were yeah 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 moving toward. Yeah. You know, uh, my collision 
my my engagement with the war was uh, I had the opportunity, and it was you know my my job description wasn't even military anymore. I was a translator and sometimes translator and administrative assistant to an American diplomat who was right, you right. know wasn't even an army guy. Um, but um, we just you know I, I was there as one human being. In, engaging with this other culture yeah. because that's the way the world happened to, to throw us all together. Mm. And, and you know, they, those guys were, are, have been in my compost heap ever since. And, and more importantly, the, what I learned, you know, so I was learning, in, in retrospect, I understood the complexity of, of the lessons I was learning about the human condition. Yeah, right, right. That yeah. was another little living, lesson in 1994. Absolutely. Then, yeah, yeah. And, and in a way, this it's, that segues nicely, the way that you said that, you know, you were kind of all thrown together, different cultures mm -hmm. just thrown together back then. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of said, whenever I meet an American, I'm always eager to, to ask them, What's going on in America at the oh, moment? Geez. Now, I, I'm not. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm happy to I'm talk gonna, to you about I'm that. I'm gonna. But. I'm. It's invariably a long answer because there's lots of different elements. Um, but and God knows we've got our own problems in in the UK and Europe at the moment. Um, but I and we do seem to have entered an age of, you know, extreme polarizing views yeah. oh. sort of chiding rhetoric and and discourse that isn't really anything much than just terseness and, and nastiness really mm -hmm. um do you i want to ask you specifically do you as a veteran kind of see similarities between today and the era of vietnam you know when when george w bush was elected president okay so we're going back to the the Early, middle, the middle idiot. Right. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know who he is. But between the, the three, well, there was. But that's the thing. <laughs> he suddenly, he suddenly, made me nostalgic for Richard Nixon. He made wow. Richard Nixon look good. Right. Now George W. Bush looks like a prince among princes. Right. Yeah. You he know. Looks like a, yeah. He looks. You like know. A, I, I guess I don't know. I, I maybe um. I I guess you don't have a bleep. A bleep thinker here, so I'm, I will, I will, I, I will assume you that can, you don't want to. You can you, you swear want, as much as you want. No, really. You fuck yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, I think Rex Tillerson, who was our our first yes. Secretary of State under the current president, put it. I, he's it's not been better put than his two word description of Donald Trump. He's a fucking moron. Yeah. You know, and I hear all the pundits and everybody trying to figure out his ideas and his, you know, his strategies. He doesn't have any ideas and strategies. Right. He's an he's a he's a he's a, a clinical narcissist. Absolutely. And so it you know, um that's the problem. But how we ended up with him is an interesting question. Mm. Um in fact, I've I've just begun a, my next literary genre novel, which in a certain way engages that with hardly ever mentioning him. I'm, I'm it, it, it's about the dying moments uh, uh, within ten minutes of Donald Trump being elected, or declared the president. The the last living World War One veteran dies in a nursing home in New Orleans, Louisiana, and mm. it's his story, and and and, and his life kind of tracks through how we got here but the fact is that Donald Trump he you know he 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 was he 
in the popular vote, he lost by three and a half million votes. Yeah. We have a very odd secondary electoral system. It's called, you know, the, the electoral college. Yeah. So that's how we got him. You know, I mean, look, the, the previous president was an African-American, you know, it was a mm. black man. And as soon as he won, I went and looked at the popular vote totals. And, you know, Obama would have beaten him by seven or eight million votes somewhere, yeah, somewhere yeah. in that and would have won the Electoral College handily. Even in his re-election, he, he, he beat uh, uh, Donald Trump's elect, uh, votes. So what that means is this: in a, you've, your parliamentary government is used to making coalitions and having people, yes, a right. number of parties come together. In a binary system where you've got two parties in a republic, yeah. there's no such thing as not voting. The people who elected Barack Obama also elected Donald Trump by just not, they're going, I don't like Hillary. I'm going to skip this one. Yeah, yeah. And that's how it happened. Yeah. On the other hand, the thing that alarms me almost more than his winning is the fact that, you know, no matter what he says and does, all the, um, all the popularity polls, you know, who thinks he, you know, who, he, he, he scores... 38, 39, 40%. Mm. And um, of people who, in spite of two years of his outrageous, idiotic behavior and words, four out of every 10 Americans approximately still think he's swell yeah. and doing a great job. That's the thing and that now, I don't call That's the terrible revelation for me. Yeah, right. Um, so we we're saying all that, do you think storytellers have got a heightened... Do you feel it? Do you feel a heightened responsibility almost to tell truth, to kind of convey truth in a way that the politicians aren't? Is that is that the role of a storyteller? Yeah. Think? We've got to understand our shared humanity. Yeah. And how to represent that in objects where... It's not about politics, it's not about ideas, it's not about themes, it's not about abstractions, you know? It, it's about the unique way in which stories are told. Mm. And, and all those people, all those lit classes are have their heads up their tushes because, I can say asses here, can't I? Okay, yeah, no. yeah. They do, because, it, you know, literature classes all over the world, they go, all right, what is the author trying to say? Mm. Hasn't said it yet until we translate this this moment-to-moment -moment sensual object that is the work of literary fiction, we translate it into ideas and abstractions and po politics and theories and themes and philosophies or whatever. That's nonsense. That's, this object exists because the writer feels that at the deepest level of our human condition, its complexity is such that it that any abstraction, any idea, any thought, any theme, any symbol, so-called, all of that stuff is reductive. It's not what is, I'm trying to say. Right. I'm saying it only, the only way you can understand it is to thrum to it, like an instrument, a string on a stringed instrument. You have to create those objects that to which you thrum and experience some vision of the order behind the apparent chaos of human life, right. but in a way that that speaks to the depths of you. And that, you know, 
Jonathan Swift said, you can't reason a person out of a position he didn't reason himself into in the first place. And, <laughs> right. and you know, and these these objects get at those parts of of human life mm. that that cannot be understood with reasoning and that we get to those in a in a different way. Okay, let let's go on to Christopher Marlowe Kit Cobb. Right? Oh him, yeah. Yeah, you about know, him. You know yeah, that guy, right? right? right. Um, By the way Go on. You in case you don't think to ask this question, go you on. just you just I, I had not made this connection, but that that bar at the yes. end of that alley, yeah. Kit Cobb goes into the German bar in Paris, the German emigre ah. bar so that in a- Paris, and and ultimately engages with them. He goes in there with a, now he goes in as a spy. I didn't, but he goes in there as a spy, and yet the engagement with the human beings there is important in the book. So now, that, where did that come from? Well, you might ask. There's, there's Hello? The com- there's the compost of your mind. Yes, working. indeed, yes. Not the mind, but yes, yeah. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> um, now, there are four books in the Kit Cobb series, yes, I believe. Are. All uh, of them published by No Exit Press. Absolutely. Um, the Hot Century, The Star of Istanbul, The Empire of the Night, and now Paris in the Dark. Yes. Um, you... Obviously, you've written about Vietnam, but you've also written about lots of different things, lots of really interesting yeah. things. Um, so why why a series? Why did you decide to do a series and at that point as well? Well, it's interesting how I, I got into that. Um, I wrote a book about a decade ago, or more uh, actually now. Um, I've been collecting picture postcards all of my mm. life. And I'm well, not all my life, but for 20 years or so, before this thing happened, and I collected old picture postcards, not so much for the images on the front, but for the messages written on the backs. During a period, and they're all pretty much between 1906 and 1917, in that era, um, before telephones really uh, were common. Uh, and in the United States, at least, probably in Britain too, uh, in that era, in every city and town, there were at least two mail deliveries a day. Right. And what happened was people could have a motion, a feeling, and they'd write it in intense brief on the back of a postcard, and right. they could get it into the first pickup in the morning. It would get... You know, and 10, 10 miles down the road was a long way in that era, you sure, know? Yeah, yeah. And it could go down the road 10, 10, 10 miles by that afternoon, and the that delivery in that town, um, they, uh, uh, they got the mail. By the next morning, they have written a reply. And, you know, it was the, it was the early 20th century's uh, yeah. text message. Sure. And um, so I collected these f- for the... The, the subtext, I'm, I'm, I have these wonderful cards that are just hint at what might be really going on in them. And I wrote, I took 15 of my favorite cards and wrote the full stories. And we published the front and the back of those cards, um, the image and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the message. And then I wrote the 
the real story. Yeah. Well, one of those one of those cards was an image, and that was also the era of the brownie camera, uh, and people were suddenly taking their own photographs, and so those two things collided, and in that era, they could uh, take a photo and get it developed onto post in in numbers on a postcard right, okay. stock. So a lot of the pictures that went out, I mean, postcards that went out, were of the images were photographs that somebody had taken. And one of those cards was a picture of a guy in a white shirt and dark trousers, and we see him from behind, and he's striding along a street, and a, and, and the street is a run of shops in with in Spanish, right, and in the far distance. Hey, up the cobbled street, you could see from behind a horse and a guy, a rider up there in some kind of military uniform. And in the mid-distance is a little gaggle of women, and there is a, an arrow that he is, that the sender has drawn pointing at one of the women. Now, the thing I have not mentioned yet, and the thing that this guy is ignoring, is that as he's walking, just barely at arm's length, he has just passed two dead bodies lying in pools of blood on the, on the street. Right. And the message on the back is simply this. After the battle, notice the pretty senoritas. The one in white does my laundry. Now, that's the entire message. Okay. And so I wrote the story, and I figured, did some sleuthing and looking around, and I, I took to that card to be an image taken in 1914 in April where uh, the battle was um, uh, where Woodrow Wilson, the American president, and he's now, you know, World War I hasn't even begun, and he's going to keep us out of World War I for several years. Nevertheless, in April of 1914, Woodrow Wilson sent the U.S. Marines into Veracruz, Mexico, and on toward Mexico City to overthrow the general that we didn't like, who was the then who'd become the uh, the, the leader of Mexico, right? Uh, because we didn't like him, and we wanted to protect American oil interests. So, like, kind of black ops, that kind of exactly. Thing. It's yeah, yeah. the Gulf War all over again, right? Yeah, yeah. and so. That's the story I wrote. And I took the guy to be an American war correspondent covering right. that invasion. Uh-huh. He wasn't named in that story, um, but the one in white, the girl, turns into a character very much like the one he encounters. Well, the story itself had literary cred because it went into the Atlantic Monthly, one of the big... Right, yeah, yeah. And it won a very prestigious award in our country called the, uh, the, the, the National Magazine Award in Fiction. Uh-huh. It won the, the award in fiction for, for, for the Atlantic Monthly and for me. They used my story as part of their application to win that award. Right. And it's administered by the same people who administer the Pulitzers. So um, that, that guy's voice, I wrote the first person, it was in his voice, this, this war correspondent. And that voice just kind of nagged at me for literally eight, nine years. Mm. And um, I really liked his voice, and I thought there might be some bigger fate for him in my oeuvre. Well, in the meantime, uh, my longtime publisher, Grove Atlantic, took in a guy named Otto Penzler, who is the dean of American editors of 
mystery, suspense, thrillers. Right, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his mysterious press imprint had been at Houghton Mifflin, came over to Grove Atlantic. And all of a sudden, I got a phone call from Otto one day. He says, he introduced himself on the phone. He says, uh, he says, listen, I've been reading, I read your story, uh, The One in White. He says, uh, I want to offer you right now a two-book contract to write at least two novels in that guy's voice. Right. And being of a literary turn of mind, my exact quote to him, I remember to this day, was, <laughs> um, oh boy, you betcha. Right. <laughs> and so that's how it happened. Uh-huh. Now, I hadn't thought of doing a series with him at the center of it. Mm-hmm. But I really had that guy's voice in my head. I mean, I, I, he, he was, he was still churning around in my, my, uh, in my, in my uh, compost heap, and ready to talk about some other stuff. And so, the, the, so the series has been a very natural feeling thing, though. Right, I didn't yeah. take much to do that because that, because for example, I, I want in that era. Mm. That 1915, World 1914 to 1918, right. beginning just before the war began through the war. And I haven't gotten all the way through yet, needless to say. But um, the zeitgeist of that time, the, yeah. just the, the, the issues, the issues that were enormous in that era. Let, let me enumerate them for you. Go okay. Ahead. Drastic new technologies, expanding the capability of mass killing and destruction, the appropriate role of America in the world, the ravages of war, waves of immigration often desperate in motive, the struggle for a viable free press, violent acts of terror, the thrashings of governments under siege, the clash of ideologies, both political and religious, racial oppression, gender repression, and dictators, and would-be dictators, right, yes. gaining and asserting power. Now, does all that sound familiar to I, I you? I was just going to say, isn't it funny? Well, not funny. It's not funny, ha-ha, that's for sure. But how... We forget the lessons of history, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, you won't if you read the Cobbs, but because no, these no. books all deal with that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you can trace it back through sure. further back as oh, well. And oh, these of course. Things happen. Of course. It's the human condition. Well, and I was that's the say, point. And that's, that's the sad thing, isn't it? It's, yeah. it have we learned anything? Yeah. Uh, we base it. But, um, back to you, you don't, we can't, we, how is, what is learning? Comp- comprised of in this regard you know as i said back to swift you can't we don't we can't reason ourselves out of our human nature and and we're you know the 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 path to improvement in that regard is is Mm -hmm. tough i mean you know we don't i mean slavery has been vanished i mean we're making progress yeah but the 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 afterclap of a lot of the things of of our terrible mistakes of the past are still with us absolutely yeah yeah um now, we spoke about the fact that, you know, you felt that Cobb, you had a lot to say uh, in his voice. Do you find writing, for want of a better phrase, crime fiction or thriller, thrillers, um, liberating or a different kind of discipline? It, it, 
to kind of so-called literary well, fiction? Well, in, in a way, neither. Um, the, the liberation and discipline are not... You have to be liberated. You have to be free yeah. to, to make... In, in creating a work of art, let's talk art here for a minute. Okay. Um, because these are are literary, all right. Because the, for me, these are just as much that in my oeuvre as as Perfume River or Good Sam from a Stranger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the art involves absolute freedom. That you that that you are true only to that. Mm-hmm that inchoate, unexpressed vision of order that you feel intuitively is there behind the apparent chaos of life on planet Earth, which we are all subject to every Absolutely, moment. Yeah. Okay? Yep. A lot of people, all those theologians and philosophers and, and you know, and, and psychiatrists and, you know, uh, 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 your grandmother. I mean, a lot of people think the world makes sense. Yeah. But they all... Their way of expressing it and understanding it as an abstraction, ideas, mm. and so forth. The artist is deeply uncomfortable with that. All that, all the abstracting is is reductive to the artist. And so, right. in order to, in order to, to create an object that that is beholden only to my the the, the vision of order that is emerging from my compost heap. To do it justice, everything has to be open. Every every possibility is is there, and the only and the only it's got to be free to do anything. And and if you're writing strictly mysteries or strictly thrillers, you're mm-hmm. not right. If that's a pre-existing intention that I'm going to write that genre, no matter what I'm thinking, feeling about the world. I'm, it, there's going to be a murder, or there's going to be, you know, a chase, or whatever. So, and then the discipline has to be the discipline of of making sure that that object for the literary writer, or the literary aspect of writing, that that every every detail, every sense detail, every moment, every plot turn, everything is organically resonates into everything else so that it's all of a whole and that that organic object then because it's organic and because it's of the senses primarily that's why we thrum to it when we read instead of thinking about it right you know and so and in that thrumming we experience sort of in a way musically the that vision of of the human, the order in our in 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 the human condition, it is often not visible. So, you have to you have to be free to make any choice, and the you have to be entirely disciplined. But it's an internal discipline. It's the discipline of the vision that you have. Right. In 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 straight genre work, the kind of freedom you have there and the kind of discipline you have there. Are of a different nature sure, than that, sure, but sure. yeah, it's freeing, it's disciplined, but it, but the freedom and discipline of historical espionage thrillers is appropriate because they happen to be also the exact right decisions and right kind of freedom and right kind of discipline 
to create the organic objects that are the Cobb books, which yeah. are not only of those genres, but also expressing what I see about the human condition. Well, yeah, because as readers, we recognize, you know, repeated situations mm-hmm. and yes. socioeconomic climates. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And, 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 and uh, the other deep thing about, about literary fiction is that all fiction, what makes a plot go? A plot is either a desire, an objective, or I use the word yearning because it is the deepest level of desire and whatever. Let's talk yearning because that's, that's the literary thing. That, that the thing we think of as plot is simply yearning, challenged and thwarted. The character deeply wants something and that's blocked, it's thwarted, you got to get around it, and then there's more blocks and more thwartings sure, and so sure. forth. That's what a plot is. Yeah. And and so um, I, I've come to believe that there's a kind of what I would call, maybe borrow a, a term from Einstein, a unified field theory of yearning. Right. And if you look deep enough in the literary books, that that in, and, and mysteries have their own sort of closer to the surface. Usually, my instead of yearning, or you could say yearning, but my objective is to solve the crime. Yeah, that's what drives the plots for it. In yearning in literary straight literary fiction. It's slippery, and that's what's hard for my students to pick up on. But I think ultimately, if you dig deep enough into, into all the great literature, that the central character yearns for a self, right? yearns for an identity, yearns for a place in the universe. I mean, that's what is driving him. I and that, that's true of literary fiction because it's true of life. That every morning, everybody on this planet, we get up, we look in a mirror. It's either a real mirror or a virtual mirror. It's, we either realize we're looking at it or we doing it unconsciously, but we look in a mirror every morning and we go, who the heck <laughs> fuck are you? You know, it's the great, who the fuck am I? Yeah. And, and where do we fit? And where do we fit? Yeah. What's our place? Yeah. You know? It's a purpose. And so, exactly. Mm. And so, um, you know, th- that's what's driving characters in, in the kind of literature I've been writing and it's what's driving Cobb. Mm. You know all the stuff we've been talking about in terms of, you know, uh, you know, he, is he is he a is he a war correspondent? Is he a is he a, a spy? Is he a, an actor from his mother doing right. all this? You yeah. know, is he is he, you know, there, that is that is that is um, whatever his mission is, and he's got plenty of objective goals in the, these books. I mean, it it carries it carries the the impetus and the uh, um, you know uh, and the, and the immediacy and the kind of active engagement of of books in the pure thriller sure. espionage genres, but at the same time, those things are in organically connected to you know Cobb trying to figure out who the hell he is. Yeah. And I think that's true for a lot of the stuff that I like to read yeah. and watch. Uh, the, you know, the best stories. The, the, yeah, the best stories are yeah. really about that. And yeah. even even the great, I mean, Holmes and Watson. Now, who Holmes was was never challenged enough that we're worried that he's just going to fall apart. Although even, 
you know, even Doyle gave him his heroin needle. Or his, what was it? Heroin that he was taking? I guess. Yeah, and yeah. Then, yeah. yeah. Gave him his heroin needle, you know, and his violin. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, there was there were depths there. Yeah. And we so we you know he drew our attention to the way the way he was already knew who he was. Yeah. But but the playing out of who you are in mystery stories. Yeah. That the detective's ability to meet the challenge of the complexity of a crime or the difficulties in them in in working out the solution mm. those are challenging that detective's sense of who he is right and he's got to i've got to be who i am yeah in order to do this but it's not easy for me or well, you know? to get to where i need yeah, to be i need yeah. to kind of jump over a lot of hurdles of course you do that's you and know? yeah and those hurdles those hurdles are on the one hand and in, in, in a lot of you know, even if they're the f- the focus of the hurdle is preventing him from solving this crime, mm. implicitly they are also a, a challenge to: Are you a good enough detective? Is that really yeah. who you are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you gonna? Are you gonna? Is who you are gonna gonna really fail now on this on this case? Mm. You know, that, in a way, we all know it's going to be okay. But uh, but some of our unease is. If we inhabit that character it's fear, in the mystery, right, we yeah. we fear about that. Absolutely, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this that's that's one reason why when when I shifted to um, I mean, you know, I've always I've always in, in even my so-called literary works, I'm I'm I've always drawn on con, often conventions that that seem to be of of other um, of of the entertainment right. genres. Um, uh, the Deuce is a young adult novel. Um, a Small Hotel is a romance. Um, Mr. Spaceman is science fiction. Yeah. Uh, I'm, Hell is fantasy. I'm naming titles you, of my books. And, they, and you could say, well, those are elements of those. Um, well, there's unifying themes in all of them. Uh, but it's exactly the same thing. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. But yeah. And, and, you know, and they're all thrashing around trying to find out who they are. But 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 the elements that surround them are often the elements I draw from my my love of all these other entertainment genres as well. Sure. So what is next for you, Robert? Immediately next is um, is a is a book um, coming to terms with uh, with what's going on mm-hmm. in America now. Mm-hmm. Have I have I not mentioned that yet? <laughs> did I, you know the, in the passing, World War One yeah. veteran? Did yes. I, have I said that yes. to you here? Yeah. Have I mentioned Graham Greene? I f- <laughs> I have forgotten whether I said that yet or not. But that's it. That's yeah. the book I'm writing now. Okay. And um, I hope to write a cob after that. I mean, I'm liking. I, I, I'm I'm I'm, you know, cob is a great way to, to um, to. Uh, you know, it's it's the it's the beer chaser on the or is it what's it the other way around? I'm not a drinking man. Whatever, it's the beer chaser on the shot of whiskey. The, the whiskey it? chaser. Yeah, the whiskey. It's the other way around, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So, Cobb's the whiskey chaser on the beer of my literary books. That's okay. it. Well, uh, long live you alternating those drinks. Thank you, um, Robert Allen Butler. Thank you so much for joining us. A delight, Paul. <laughs>